0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Today it's my conversation with Deborah Pryor. Deborah is a retired academic. She lives in Brisbane now, but she was raised in England. As a tiny baby, at just two weeks old, Deborah was sent to a children's home called Holnicote House in rural Somerset. And at five, she was adopted into a family. But it was only when she went to school that she realised She didn't look like most of the other kids, who were quick to point out that her hair was frizzier than theirs. Deborah was one of several thousand mixed-race children born in England during the war years. They were the babies of brief wartime liaisons between British women and African-American troops, men who went back to America, often unaware they'd left children behind. The attitudes of the time meant that mothers were pressured to hand over their babies for adoption. This cloak of shame made it incredibly difficult for Deborah to track down her birth mother and to finally meet her under extraordinary circumstances. Hello, Deborah. Hello, Richard. You spent all of your early life at Holnicote House. What do you remember of that time?
0: Um, Experience at the home was happy. From what I could know, it was secure, and it was uh, lots of playtime because there was um, a group of other children that were just like me. And it was just happy. And we were cared for by um, young nursery nurses who'd never seen brown babies before. So we were a bit of a novelty. And uh, it was just, I can't even remember it was just being a happy time. And it was in a lovely rural setting and fields around it, just pretty idyllic actually.
1: And what do you remember of the house itself? It looks very beautiful from the photos I've seen.
0: It, I just remember it as a, a big house and big rooms. And, and imagine to a small child, everything looked big. And it had a lovely garden, and there was a little thatched cottage in the in the grounds, which turned out to be matron's uh, viewing centre, so <laughs> she kept an eye on us when we were in the play, in the in the garden. As an adult, I can look back and see it was a very grand house, but as a child, it was just a very big house.
1: Was there a lot of the great outdoors about your childhood?
0: Yes, there was. <laughs> there was. Because it was where it was located, as I say, in this lovely rural village, surrounded by fields and walks and what have you. Um, when we could walk, in fact, I think even before we could walk, it was the duty of the nursery nurses to take us out for a walk every single day. Rain, shine, snow, whatever. we <laughs> went <We're> going out <laughs> for this walk.
1: <laughs> but... See, the way you're talking about it, it sounds like a very happy and very very secure. It sounds like you felt very safe there.
0: Yes. I, can, I, can, I, I don't remember any fears or any anxieties. It was just a nice place to be for my early years. Um, I think I think one great thing, of course, was having all the other children. There was about 12 of us that were all basically born between 1944 and forty-five. So these were like built-in playmates. You know, it was just fabulous.
1: Nonetheless, tell me about... What happened when you were lining up for the bath on one occasion? Oh.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, again, because we, do, we did everything together, um, that included bath time. And the nurses had the task of obviously dipping us in and out of the whatever, you know, the bath. So we we had to, those in waiting, had to sit on the windowsill or somewhere. So I was sitting on the windsill all ready to go in the bath. And one of, we had, um, you know, those old sash cord windows? Yeah. And um, I could still hear the nurse saying, I think it must have been Leon. It's bound to have been Leon. He was our big brother type. Don't play with that sash cord. And of course he did. And out (laughs) I fell. (laughs) Into the garden below, I believe.
1: (laughs) Were you all right? (laughs) Oh,
0: I broke an arm and cut my head open and had to go to the hospital.
1: Did Um, you get a reward for being brave?
0: (laughs) I did. I did. And, And... See, in the home, in the children's home, everything was shared. Nobody had anything personal. So for being very good, the nurses gave me a tube of sweets. And I can remember going, when I got back to the home, and I was sitting on the potty, and I can clearly remember sticking the sweets up my jumper so nobody else would get them. <laughs> 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 That's my little, <laughs> my little mind of selfishness. So, <laughs> I don't think I hang on to them for very long, though.
1: <laughs> How old were you when you were adopted then? Five. And, and, what, and what do you remember of that process?
0: Uh, before that, we were often lined up in on parade, at, you know, where people came to visit us to choose. So when it was my turn to go with these people who were going, who I might be living with, I didn't know what adoption was. Obviously, um, I, I just remember the. The wrench and and the journey, it was going from one side of the England to the other, so it was an extremely long train journey for a little five. Really. I wasn't quite five at the time, and I was just so anxious about it all. I didn't know. One of the nurses came with me, and this man, this strange man, who turned out to be the father who was going to adopt me, um, and I didn't know what was going on. And I, the further and the longer the train journey went on, the more anxious I became. Um, and I just felt totally bewildered by it all. I didn't know what was going on or why I was going where I was going, you know. I suppose they didn't have the words to explain to us in those days other than the fact we might have a new home.
1: Somerset's in the west of England. Where were they taking you?
0: The other side, the east, the furthest point you could go from where Somerset is. So it was in the east um, Essex area.
1: And do you remember coming into your new home and settling in there and having a sense that this is where you were going to live from now on?
0: Um, I I certainly remember the first day. um, I remember meeting my future mother. And I remember the house because I had never seen a two-storey house before and I'd never seen one that was like that um, in a more of a a small town rather than surrounded by, uh, you know, fields where, where I'd grown up. So the house itself was a bit of a surprise. Um, I remember our first meal, which I committed my first crime of ungratefulness um, because they served rice pudding and there's no way I was going to eat that rice pudding. I detested it. So that was a bit naughty. Um, But... It still didn't occur to me that that was going to be my home because my home was back in Honigat House, you know. <laughs> that was where I'd always been, so. And I guess in those days, it didn't really explain things to children like you would today.
1: What did you notice about your adoptive parents, Sid and Queenie?
0: Oh, yeah. Well, uh, Sid was white, of course, um, very English. Uh, but my mother was actually coloured. She had coloured skin like me, um, so I suppose, in a way, that can't really remember your actual feelings, but I, I, I suppose it must have given me some comfort because um, that was quite unusual. I don't know if people realised that there weren't many coloured people in the 1940s in, in Britain. The first cohort of um, West Indians didn't come till 1948, so we preceded that. So it was quite unusual to see that. I suppose, and, and but the whole town was white. There was no she was the only one.
1: Was she from the Caribbean?
0: I don't know. She never told me. She never told me. Her father was a, a merchant seaman, um, so I assume he was from the Caribbean. But she never, she just found it a, a, a source of great shame and uh, she never talked about it.
1: Her blackness, was a short, Was that a source of shame to her as well? Yes,
0: yes, very much so. It was um, a disadvantage to her and um, she imposed that on me as well. It was sad, really. And yet here she was living in a very white, middle-class township.
1: Mm. Did she try to conceal it at all?
0: Uh, she did, yes. She always, um, I always remember her putting what I can see today was quite pale uh, makeup on or powder. It was only face powder they used in those days and straightening her hair. And she was a very smart woman as well. So that, you know, she made her sort of stand out because she was very well-dressed. But, yeah, she used to straighten her hair and all that sort of thing.
1: So mm. you'd grown up in this initially had been in this place, which was full of kids, and you were all I'm imagining in in, in the big home, sort of all pinging around the place like mm. little kids do. Mm. Did you then have to suddenly behave differently now that you were in a adopted family?
0: Mm. Oh gosh, yes, oh yes, I mean, and I think that was hard all round for everybody because um, I was five. Almost five, I, I, I was five in March and they, I was there in about, anyway, I was about five. Um, and of course, my way of behaving was already conditioned by my time in the, nurse, in the children's home. So um, I find it hard to sleep on my own, for example, apparently I used to have nightmares and screaming and all that sort of thing very confused and very anxious, I started biting my nails and all the classic signs of stress, you know, wet in the bed, all that kind of thing. Because I was on my own in this room. There was another girl with me. I didn't know her, but um, she was much younger than me. So being in a room on my own actually was quite frightening.
1: And was the other girl adopted too?
0: Yes, eventually. Yes. Um, And
1: and, and how did your your new parents, how did they adapt to this new life that they'd they'd created for themselves with two adopted kids?
0: Yes, it was hard, much harder than they thought. I can see that. It was very hard because we were two girls, weren't related in any way. Um, I didn't know the other girl from Honigat House because she was much younger than me. I was already formed in my ways, as it were, (laughs) at five years old. And they didn't know how to deal with us quite clearly. They didn't know how to deal with us. So we were punished, but I'm not. am go- not condemning them. I don't want to condemn them because they did what they was best, and they coped as best they could. And certainly, physical punishment was the norm in those that that time.
1: But could you get a sense of love from them?
0: No, no, no. It was um, there was no affection there. I think it was just a struggle, a struggle. You know, you don't like to criticize, and I certainly don't want to condemn them. They did their best, but God, it was horrible. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Nonetheless, you mentioned that you were made to feel ungrateful about not wanting to eat the rice pudding. Was that oh, yeah, a common that, theme? that was
0: constant. That was constant. Because I think, again, it was part of their coping, and I speak, I suppose, as a more mature person that studied a lot of psychology, you know, part of it was their coping. And they had an expected standard of behaviour, and if we didn't comply, we were punished. Um, we were, I particularly was forever being told that I'd be sent back because initially we were six months probation, and there was always the threat that you would be sent back wherever that was going to be, you know if we misbehaved, and they kind of used that as a bit of a weapon um, that, we, that, that that we should be grateful, and that if we didn't behave and do as we were told, we could be sent back. There was always that temperance about our time, which is a shame really, but that's um, just how it was but then they gave us they gave me a home um, and it was quite a comfortable home too, you know. It was nice, semi-detached as they used to say.
1: how about uncles and aunties were plenty, were they were they around and were they a, a bit more affectionate with you? um
0: well, on my father's side they we were a source of shame and, and even when we went to go and visit his mother we, we had to kind of go out in the garden, but that's another story. Um, on my mother's side, yes, she had a she was one of five, and they they were lovely, they embraced him. there was one particular um auntie. Auntie Nan, who embraced her blackness, and she was a quintessential big black mama. And I mean that with the greatest regard because she was. <laughs> she had the hair, she didn't care about it. She was, she used to plod around in her slippers, you know, and that kind of thing. But she was gorgeous, loved her. Loved did
1: you ever her. think, did you ever think I wish she'd adopted me instead? Yes.
0: Yeah. And she said yeah. the same to me, actually.
1: God, but, uh, yeah. but then your dad's family wanting you to stand in the garden, my man, that's... Yeah,
0: but people, that was in the, this is the 1950s. There was a lot of, people didn't, un, they didn't, hadn't had chance to really understand coloured people, Negro people, whatever they called us in the day. They hadn't really had chance to know about them. We were just strange. We were just different. That's why you got all the name calling. And see even when the West Indians hadn't were just starting to arrive, um, so that there was a few more of them around in London. But generally speaking, people were very bigoted towards anybody that was different, and particularly if you were coloured or black. They didn't call it black, I don't think. I think we were just Negro.
1: How about being adopted? I mean I know you have a memory of leaving a home and going into this household. But was there a moment when you needed to be told you're actually an adopted child? You've been. Uh, do you have a consciousness of that, or did you always know that? I
0: always know that. I was told regularly, told very regularly, um, particularly when there was punishment involved. Yeah. Um, so no, was never. I, I, I was never in doubt <laughs> about my adopted status. So you adopted, illegitimate, and um, coloured. You know, that wasn't good ammunition to go into the big world of school, believe me.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, when you'd been in the, in, the, in the home, you'd been around a whole lot of kids who were either black or part black or something like that. Yeah. Was this the, when you went to school, was that the first time you realised that you your look was not the norm, I yeah, suppose? Yeah, it was really? really.
0: It was really. I mean, it started when we started just going around the local community, obviously shopping, but school really, that really confronted me. Um, with, the, with the reality. That's where the name calling started. Because before that, wherever we went, before, I'm saying school was more intense, if you know what I mean. There was always the pointing and the, you know, mummy, why has that girl got fuzzy hair? Why is that girl like a golly? What, what You know, that went on constantly. Um, but school really punched it to you, you know. That's where you got the nigger and the <laughs> go back home and all that sort of thing. And my mum says, you're dirty, yeah, you know. Oh, All that ignorant stuff.
1: And yes. yet I'm talking to Dr. Deborah Pryor, who is, has a PhD. Who gave you a love of education then?
0: Oh, do you know, my mother did. Because she said to me, my adopted mother said that, Deborah, the only way you're going to get better and be better than anybody else is to get you know, a good education. Um, and to that end, they started me off at a little Anglican prep school. Um, which was not a good thing to do because all the other families were against us. They were prejudiced towards me, particularly, because I was very Negro-looking. Um, but she did impose... She did set that, sow that seed, that, that education is a way forward. It's a way to better yourself. But when I was at school, my primary purpose was to survive and to be accepted because I had this rejection... Uh, chip on my shoulder, <laughs> so never good enough. So unfortunately, when I was actually in my formal school years, all I did was be accepted, you know, worked really hard to be liked. You know, I mean, I'm, plenty of people can tell that story. You you forego your education to just to have friends.
1: Talking to people who've had your experience with education, being like the only one of this in a larger group of that in in, in a school, One one of the few benefits you get from that, though, is you do have to figure out who you are at an early age, you can't just sort of blend into the crowd and mm. just assume their values. You have mm. to kind of really have that moment where you know what it's like to be alone and to enjoy your own company and to figure out... There's a kind of an integrity that can often grow up from that alienation. Do you think you got some of that?
0: Yes, I did. Of course I did, yes. Because, it, I mean, the struggle was trying to, as you say, to, to, to fit in, to be like others, but they, there was nobody really like me there. And just a very silly, simple example with with the hair, because my hair was, you know, that lovely, amazing f- ball of frizz that it was. And th- the fashion of the day was to be long-haired and plaits, you know. <laughs> when I tried to plait my hair, it just sort of stuck out, like two thorns sticking out, you know, the horns sticking out the side of my head, <laughs> you know. Um, so, yes, yeah, so th- 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 there was a point where I had to kind of, as a young person anyway, except me, as this is what I was, because I couldn't be the same as the others. I couldn't, I didn't look like them. Um, Their fashions, their hairstyles, just, I couldn't adopt that.
1: Do you remember any teachers at school who were particularly kind?
0: Um, not really. I think when I got to high school, the gym mistress was quite nice, Miss O'Neill, and the library lady was quite nice, and I was friends with her daughter, but... No, it's sad really, isn't it? Not, 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 the only one that really stands out for me was when I went to this little prep school and she was an Anglican nun and I think her name was Sister Dorothea. I looked at the um, history book of the school and she, she's the most likely to be one. And the reason she stands out is because when I arrived there at five and a half in this little private prep school, stood out like a sore thumb she realized i couldn 't read or write, and all the other children could because of their background and She took me um, under a wing, I suppose, and and every break time um, she took me to to learn to read and write so i 'd look out and watch all the other kids having fun in the playground during play break and i'd be she 'd be teaching me to read and I think that was absolutely profound in my future um, because when we had to leave the nice little prep school because of we just didn't fit in and there was quite a lot, some nasty stuff going on with the other kids and we went to a big rough-tumbled public school, you know, <laughs> um, if nobody would have sat down with me to, to, to progress my reading and writing. So Sister Dorothea probably is the most influential teacher in my whole life.
1: How old were you when you eventually left home then, Deborah?
0: Just about 16, I was there for, yeah, I thought I was, I went in, I was lucky enough to have advice about going into nursing, and um, at that, the that time they were start at the local hospital, they were starting the first cadet nurse, nursing course, which enabled 15 and 16 year olds to enter nursing, and my mother was clearly ready to get, I say get rid of me, it was, there was other reasons for it, and I, I, I you know, won't dwell on that now, but. She needed to get me out of the house, and um, so she told a bit of a fib that they were moving and I wouldn't be able to live with them anymore, and so I was in the nurse's home at age 16.
1: Were you glad to get out, though? Yes. Yes. It, it was wonderful. <laughs> so as as a teenager, were you, were you becoming more and more curious about your background?
0: Yes, I was. I was. I was starting to, um, yes, you know, it started to mean something. And I think going into the nurse's home helped because that was the first time I ever met, um, not immediately, but I started to meet other people of colour, other people from African-American back... Not African-American so much, sorry, as the Caribbean background. So, and, because people, as you're going through schooling, ask questions, and I remember at one point in school, they asked me, well, where are you from or what's your... How's your... Why's your hair like that? And I said, from Peru... I can only think
1: <laughs> that
0: popped into my head because it's before Paddington, obviously, but we must have had something in geography or something because it just sort of fitted. So I said, I'm from Peru. So, yeah, the curiosity was starting to um, gain some traction in thinking, yes, yeah, so what, what am I about
1: yeah. So, did you ever go into like you know places like Brixton, because Brixton was starting to fill up with yes. uh, uh, Caribbean migrants where you'd see a kind of majority of uh, of black people on the street did you what was that like for you to walk down the street oh, that, fabulous that was the It was fabulous
0: life I mean it taught me a lot about life going to Brixton, and one of the West Indian nurses that I befriended took me first introduced me to Brixton, and from that i I met my first pash, my first love <laughs> <laughs> and uh, which was lovely because they taught me about their culture and I very much envied it because it was so clearly defined even though they had their own struggles of, of, of adjusting to English ways. Was
1: and, that the high point of rude boy culture? You know, with guys walking around with their sharp suits, book pie hats, skinny gosh, ties, scar yes. music, all Spitz, of that. Spitz, yeah, yeah. yeah. It was a good look though. <laughs> was, those, those guys looked amazing. They, that's where you get scar music from that Yeah,
0: time. That, that's right. Oh yeah. And, and we had the Calypso and partying. Oh my God, every weekend was partying, you know, and they really partied in the streets, so you'd go from one place to another. I didn't live there, but um, from where I was working as a student nurse, it wasn't far to chuff um, up there on the train. Um, with my new passionate boyfriend, we we used to go up. i had to go up there quite a bit, and it was. I just loved the West Indian culture and the food and everything. Green bananas, um, roti. In a, you know, oh, it's, it's just lovely. So that was my awakening culturally in some ways.
1: So how do you then get from there to all the way to Australia?
0: Oh, yes, well. Um, this was in the mid 70s and I don't know if you recall things weren't really good for young people in Britain in the no. mid 70s. There was lots of um, industrial problems going on and there was I, I clearly remember the 3-day week it didn't affect me as a nurse, but it affected a lot of industries. Anyway, so Australia was also actively recruiting um, opportunistically, I suggest young um, tech people. And my partner at the time, now my husband of 40 years, um, was applied for a position uh, with an Australian company, a a very new um, IT company. So this is mid-70s. So um, he was also looking at Canada because a lot of the young people in the mid-70s from Britain either went to South Africa, Canada, America, Australia or New Zealand, so we tossed a coin and Australia won, thank goodness. And um, that's how we came over. And I'd also some rather mucky domestic stuff there. So I kind of escaped. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and were you relieved to escape that? And Was it a way of, in your mind, being able to reinvent yourself a little bit?
0: Yes, it was, Richard, very much so. And it, and it has proven to be so as well. Um, I think sometimes we're kind of hampered a wee bit by... You can't run away from that, your life, and I've learnt that over the year, but um, it can sort of shackle, hold you down a wee bit. So it, it proved to be a fantastic move, and we've, uh, as I say, we've been living here now since 1977, so we'll probably stay.
1: I think, you, I think you should, you know, buy rather than rent at this point. Yes, I think that's probably a good idea if you can afford it. So, so you landed in the Brisbane sunshine and, uh, and, and how did you, then did you pursue education from there?
0: Oh, okay. Yeah, well, um, I always wanted to be a teacher and, and interesting enough, my mother was a teacher and there was this urge in me to be a teacher. Anyway, I just arrived and got an interview at the Royal Brisbane and actually got an interview. I filled a form out. And I worked in the clinical area there for a little while. I worked in a clinical area at the PA. And then an education position came up at the Royal Brisbane. So I went back there and and started working in the School of Nursing. And from then, I just got the education bug. And I just thought, well, mum was right. (laughs) If I want to get on, I I need to be educated. So I started, uh, and nursing was also emerging as a discipline in itself. So, um, you know, so I did start the Diploma of Nursing when I was in England before we came over, but I never completed that. But I still got the bug. And what was fabulous was things like psychology and history, so it, which helped my maturing as well to just understand that and understand how important history is and to understand um, human behaviour and all that sort of thing. So once I was at School of Nursing and I got my diploma and then i got my bachelor and i just went on i didn't stop till i got my phd you know (laughs) and i thought oh that's good done that (laughs) podcast broadcast and online you're listening to conversations with richard Feindler. Conversations are available on the ABC Listen app, or go to abc.net.au slash conversations.
1: Deborah, as you grew up, were you always thinking about your birth mum and hoping you would track her down one day?
0: Oh yes, all the time. In fact, I started my search back in the 60s, when I was in England, obviously, and um but never got anything. So what you do, you Just in those days, it was all very slow. But I've been basically sending correspondence to Somerset County Council because I knew that's where I, I the home was um, for, for years.
1: Why um, was it so hard for them to respond to you?
0: I, I don't really know. They either... It was always a blank. There was no records or they didn't have access to the records or something like that. But there was never any satisfactory um, response at all. And that went on for years. And, you know, you don't, sort of, I didn't pursue it all the time. You sort of pick it up and try again and then you start again. And it wasn't until the 90s that anything really started happening.
1: How did you start to make some progress then?
0: Well, it was extraordinary. Situation really. So I, I most recently I probably say written about the end of the 1980s nineteen um, eighties, and I was in a meeting at, here at Mount Olivet, funny enough, and I was actually chairing the meeting, and I got a call from my husband to say, oh got to tell you this. i just had a call from Somerset County Council. They want you to get in touch urgently. And I thought, what? Anyway, what had happened, a retired social worker from Somerset County Council Children's Department had made it his retirement project to find us. Wow. He, he knew about Honecote House. He obviously had a curiosity about, well, okay, these kids were there for 1944 to about 1946, what happened to them? So this guy, this lovely guy, David, um, was tracking us down. And obviously, and thank goodness, the Somerset County Council had kept my correspondence.
1: And because he was, because he was a, 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 from the Department of Social Services, mm. did he have the kind of access and, and, and reach that you would not have otherwise oh, had? Oh,
0: undoubtedly. Absolutely. Absolutely. And when I look back, uh, you know, since I've been preparing for, to talk with you, I, I've realised how much he, he, he did. Stuff that I've been asking for for years, he was able to find, like my original birth certificate. <laughs> you know, that was something. I mean, why, why, why was that so hard to find? I don't know. I really don't understand, Richard. To be honest, um, I, whether there was some limitation on, you know, had there was that embargo on on um, information, whether that was to do with that the legal restrictions, I, I really didn't get to the bottom of that. I mean, now it's fine. I could write for anything. They still can't find my my personal records, but they can certainly find a lot about children from Honeycutt House. So that's phone call. Um, so obviously clearly, I got in touch with David fairly quickly um, by phone <laughs> and um, from then I started to get correspondence and he tracked down a few of the other children from the same um, home and we started corresponding together. And then the most wonderful thing he did for us was to organise a reunion and uh, so this all happened in in the matter of a couple of years. So, from going from nothing to suddenly having all this information was quite overwhelming, to be honest. So, I started getting letters from Anne, who was with me in the home, and Carol, and a couple of the others, and we all David arranged for us for a reunion. One January, nineteen ninety-seven, freezing cold. I never go to England in January, but anyway, um, and it was extraordinary, absolutely wonderful.
1: And did you recognise them after all those years?
0: It wasn't so much a physical recognition, it was just a recognition. I think it would be like meeting a long lost relative. There was, there was no discomfort. We just threw ourselves together. Oh, golly, it makes me feel emotional to think about it. It was just, and, you know, and then after a while, there was, but I don't think it's, there was any physical recognition. I, I don't see how, how, how they could be really, because we've not seen each other since we were five
1: years old. Did anyone remember you falling out the window? <laughs> uh, well,
0: actually, Leon did confess. <laughs> Bless him. Rest in peace, dear Leon. But yes, because it was a game, you know, boys playing boys, being boys, you know.
1: You know, childhood memories are so uh, kind of fuzzy but vivid at the same time. Yes. I suppose you all would have had all these overlapping intersecting fuzzy memories that are very warm, are sort of laden with emotion and oh, all yes. those sorts of
0: things. Oh, they were. And and David not only arranged the reunion uh, with us and some of the little the nurses, there was about three of the nurses that actually literally wiped our bums and <laughs> put us to sleep. He also <laughs> took us out to Hunnecut House. So we, we all, uh, there was probably about six, maybe seven of us, so we all had a mem- trip down memory lane. And when we got to the home, we immediately knew it. We all went out into the garden. We were just like kids again. And we all knew Matron's little house, which is still there because it's National Trust, so it's all protected. And we, just, we were just like kids. This was a filthy winter day, freezing cold. We were running around that garden like kids. It was just fabulous. Mm.
1: What's that like? Is that like is that like walking into your younger self or what is that like for you to yes
0: to it is like that? it is like walking into your younger self it's it's um a regression i suppose you'd put it in psychological terms but it it felt so so safe and um uninhibited i mean my my husband was there and my daughter was there um and it didn't matter we just yeah we were just uninhibited it was just just free
1: you were giving each other permission to behave like uh, gr- mm. grown-up people mm. who are quite successful or not successful in their careers, but giving each other permission to behave like little kids again. Yes, and, and I think we were. Like I
0: think we were, and we were all doing little reminiscence about, oh, do you remember how when we used to play and, and and if we did something naughty, out of nowhere, matron would come in and catch us, you know? <laughs> And that's because Matron's house was positioned in that way. Huh. Yeah, no, we, we went down with those. And we, we couldn't visit all of the um, inside the, the home because it's now being used as a National Trust um, holiday retreat. Um, and they, they did have residence there because it's set in such a lovely place. It, a lot of people go there for uh, walking holidays.
1: Are, are you telling me you were being told not to be naughty again? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is on the National Trust now. <laughs> you, be, you behave yourself, behave young yourself. lady.
0: Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that was quite extraordinary. And it was a, a marvellous reunion. And we've all, um, those of us that left, because unfortunately a few have passed on, uh, we still keep in
1: touch. So, Debbie, your mother, mm. what was David, mm. David Stanley, who'd mm. been doing this project, yeah. what was he able to tell you about? Your well, he, mother.
0: he found her because the, the difficulty had been that um, when I was adopted, I was given another name, though I was born, and on my birthday, it was Margaret Patricia Windsor, but I was adopted as Deborah Margaret. Um, so, you, had, you, had,
1: you were given the same name as Princess Margaret on your
0: birth? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes, that's right. <laughs>
1: <laughs> has that not occurred to you, that thought, until now? Oh, yes, yeah,
0: of course it has. I, I like, I enjoy that.
1: <laughs> well, your Royal Highness. Until I mean... people see me, and they think,
0: oh, no, maybe not. But no, that's my mother's uh, married name. Yeah, because she was married. That was her married. So I was born, on my birth certificate, it's Margaret Patricia Windsor, have you know.
1: <laughs> <laughs> what did you find out about her situation during the war years?
0: Well, she was, when she had a liaison with... My, fa- my birth father, which produced me, she was a young widow. She'd lost her husband and a torpedo. He, he was serving in the Navy and his, unfortunately, his ship was torpedoed and he was lost. And she also had two little children, two girls under three. So she was, uh, and she was working as the, uh, she was the village schoolmistress. Um, so she had quite a respectable status in the village. Um, I mean a village, you know, one school village type of thing. So her liaison with, generally speaking, the women were condemned for having anything to do with the Negro soldiers, but she did, clearly.
1: How do you think they met? Do you have any idea?
0: Well, I I only know from um, what historical data or information there is available now. And it was very common for the local churches to put on church hall dances and, of course, the local pubs and what have you. So she most probably met him at one of those dances, I would have thought. I must also say that the the Negroes, as they were called, Negro GIs, the black GIs, were in segregated camps. They didn't have a good life. And I think from what I've read, the local women mothered them. They took pity on them because they were treated appallingly by their white counterparts. They were in segregated camps. They weren't allowed at that time to be on the front line. They were treated like the subservient troops to serve the white ones. So they didn't have a good time. So I think people like my mother probably, yes, as I say, wanted to mother them, wanted to give them some comfort. So, but I can, I, I can see how difficult it would be to have that liaison in her situation and know that her baby was going to be, you
1: know, not white, put it that way. How many children came out of such liaisons? Do you, do you have any idea?
0: Well, in Somerset they counted about 37. Now, clearly there would have been more because some would have been hidden... And, you know, it's only what, what the local council became aware of. So I, I've seen that number, 37. That was just in Somerset. I think there's many, many more. I think in the in entire of England, there'd be at least about 2,000 of us.
1: Surely some of those relationships would have been more than a wartime fling. Surely mm. there would have been some who wanted to get married.
0: Yes, yes. And that's the sad thing, which I do respect, it must have been dreadful. So I don't. I have no idea whether my mother's affections to my father were what they were, but... I do know that a lot of those, when they knew that their girlfriends were pregnant, that they wanted to marry them, they wanted to take them back to England. But of course, for the the Negro soldiers, it was an offence to liaise with a white woman because they had, under the Jim Crow laws of segregation, so even though they were serving in Britain, they were still under those laws laws of segregation imposed in America. So it was hard for them to even uh, reveal that they had a, a white girlfriend let alone that she was pregnant with their child. So it was difficult all right. So there's a lot of politics around it.
1: And of course a great many would have just gone back to the United States completely unaware that they'd fathered any oh, children. Oh, of
0: course they are. I suspect so. I suspect so. More than likely. That, 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 uh, and that's what's been hard in the, in the tracing, you know, my journey because I don't have a name. Uh, I don't know what he was called. He might have been called Reginald, but that's all I know. And um, I've... Through DNA, I'm, I'm trying to see if there's any connections you know, that come up, but nothing close has really revealed itself just yet.
1: So what do you know about your mother's pregnancy then? Was she obliged to hide her pregnancy?
0: I believe she was. Um, on my birth certificate, she identifies herself as a, living in the rectory and um, being a domestic. Well, she might have lived in the rectory or the rectory might have helped her, but she certainly wasn't a domestic. I think in those days they used to wear just you know, loose clothes and bind their abdomens to try and hide the pregnancy, but um, I suspect it would have been quite difficult. I don't know what kind of stories she would have um, woven around that one.
1: Whose decision then was it to hand you over for adoption?
0: I think it was a mixture of the county council who saw us as the problem and The fact that she put a name down, uh, addressed down as the rectory, whether the local vicar sort of helped out as well because the decision for me to be removed was made before I was born and I've read the policies of the day and we stayed in the maternity nursery for two weeks and then we went to the, the children's home. So I suspect that the decision was in her best interest and that's how it's written, that it is in the mother's best interest, so they can re, um, carry on with their lives, with their families, reconcile with their families.
1: Given that there were 30 or so brown babies along with you in Holnitcoat House, mm. there must have been, I imagine there was some kind of policy, whether it was stated or unstated, about uh, what should be done with such children. Mm.
0: Mm. Well, I mean, we, we did become a bit of a problem because the politics came in And I've read that there was a move to get a consent and they actually had set up families in America for us, um, you know, coloured families, and that was in 1947. And then in 1948, the Children's Act came in, 1948, the Children's Act, and that stopped that, that children could not be taken out of the country. But there were actually um, families set up for us, I say for us, I I don't know who, but, you know, that there was some family set up. And it actually got on a very high level because I have read that even Eleanor Roosevelt was involved in trying to intervene in that decision. But the British government took um, priority, obviously, in their decision. So... We was in England. There was no chance of us being sent to America, and you often fantasize about what the difference would have been. But it wasn't America in the sixties. Uh, sorry, in the fifties, uh, wouldn't have been a good place to be raised necessarily. But the, not in the south,
1: not in the deep south. No, 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 no. no.
0: no. I mean, you, as I say, you can, you can romanticize about the if onlys, all the possibilities. But that's so. That's how it became, and it was political, and um, and to their credit, the county council did their best to try and get us. Um, adopted or um, rehoused, I think was the word, into appropriate places.
1: Podcast, broadcast, and online. You're listening to Conversations with Richard Feidler. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. So then how, Deborah, did you reach out to find your birth mother?
0: Through David. So I actually, he gave me her address. Now, whether that's right or wrong is not really the point to me anymore, and I wrote to her and I wrote to her about my life and basically thinking, well, what would I like if I was her just to know my child had grown well and had developed, made her own life and uh, blah, blah, blah. But I wrote to her and I never heard back for mm, some considerable time. And then suddenly I got this letter, which was written in third person as if it was her sister. And to the effect that, uh, oh, uh, my sister's not too well at the moment and I'm sure um, she'd write to you when she's well enough, that kind of thing. And years later, I have had it verified, because I've still got the letter, obviously, I've had it verified that that was my mother's handwriting. So I, I'm happy that she got my letter and that she did know how I turned out sort of thing. But later on, when I had the chance to meet her, it was on such limiting conditions.
1: Yeah. Now, how did that f- unfold? How are you finally getting to meet her?
0: Uh, well, her her eldest daughter was kind of the gatekeeper of the family, which is often the role, isn't it? And she was very cross. She was very annoyed. And when I think about it, let's face it, suddenly her whole knowledge of her mother was suddenly confronted. You know, this this, this her mother wasn't who she thought she was sort of thing. So she was very cross. But anyway, when she calmed down, she C- did agree. Cross with who? Cross with you? Cross with me. Had it. Well, you know, I, I introduced a blemish to her family. <laughs> And and also, you know, I have to say there was a little bit of racism there as well, you know. We'd, you hear the classic line, oh, we, we don't mind colour, you know. We don't, I don't have too much problems with it, that kind of thing. Um, but so she agreed that I could meet my mother, but I had to say I was a friend of hers, not
1: who I was. What? What, yeah. you had to say you were a friend of the older daughters? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, and and... and and that was you just as you walked into the room or before you walked oh, into the room? Before I walked
0: in. That was the only condition she'd let me
1: visit her. And, and what happened when you w- walked into that room?
0: Oh, well, it was quite funny actually because my mother, you know, she looked at me and the first thing she said was, Oh, you look familiar. And now she was an old lady. I think she was, she might have been 90, but she was certainly late 80s or, or early 90s. Oh, you look familiar. I thought, How interesting, you know. And I sat there, and um, my husband was with my birth mother's husband, you know, because he is a bit of a strange person. So it was just my daughter, and me, and this other um, older sister. And I, and I sat there and pretending to be this friend
1: and from Australia. Running, and what was running through your mind? I wanted
0: happened. to tell her who I am <laughs> all the time. I wanted to tell her who I am. Um, apparently I just asked one naughty question, which was oh um, and how many how many daughters have you got? <laughs> and she quickly said three. She snapped three.
1: Did she twig? Did she know? I mean she must you must have been staring at her so intently. I
0: was, Did- I was. As I say, she's an old lady, so she was just an old lady sitting there, but I just dearly wanted to say something. And and that's that was the nearest I came, was just asking how many daughters she had because um, I thought of her as an old lady. It wasn't too fair to confront to with that. But when I said goodbye, um, I don't know how it happened, but just for about a few seconds I was on, on my own with her um, and I just gave her a kiss and said, bye, Mum. That was it. Nobody else heard that. Nobody else saw it, but and she just looked at me. So, you know, I hope I gave her that peace, put it that way. I couldn't develop a relationship. It was far too late for that, but I hope I gave her that peace that she knew who I was.
1: <laughs> do you wonder how she lived all those years with that secret knowledge?
0: Yes, I do. Particularly what do you think? as I've I've learned a little bit more about her. I I think she would have had it buried deep, but I think I don't think she would have forgotten me. I don't think she would have done.
1: No, how how could she have? I wonder, what she, I wonder what she told herself. There couldn't mm-hmm. have been no other way. She was constrained by circumstances.
0: Oh, I'm sure. I mean, they, we, we all rationalise our decisions like that, don't we? And I think when I look back at it and I learn more about the history of, of that day, um, she didn't really have a choice. It would have been too difficult. She had two children. If it had been on her own, maybe. And a lot of the mothers did keep their mixed-race child. And that still wasn't a good outcome. Um, but at least there was... You know the child knew who the, who the mother was. She had two children to look after already. She was on her own at the time she did remarry and then she had another daughter. She probably could did, really didn't have any choice, and I fully understand that.
1: It's all too stupid and cruel. yeah I mean she's a lonely war widow at mm. that time
0: mm.
1: and who can blame her for wanting intimacy and comfort? who can mm. blame her for that mm. and and the suf- and what she suffered for that for mm. that moment. It's yes, terrible. Course, yeah. I mean, uh, do you, how do you feel towards her now?
0: Oh, probably a little bit of pity more than anything. I mean, I, I, when I heard that other mothers had kept their, their mixed-race child, I did feel a bit angry that she didn't make an effort. But really and truly, she did have no other choice, and I just feel she must have had uh, years of regret. Um, I know that feeling of reflection of just, you know, forgive me type of thing. You, you want to... Project that forgiveness to the person that you've um, abandoned. Um, I don't believe she just breezed off and never thought of me again. I don't believe that for one minute. You
1: know. And then there's and then there's your father's identity.
0: Yes. Yeah. Have you
1: have you given up hope of, of finding? No,
0: it? no, I haven't. And and the DNA, I, I've. I'm on the Ancestry DNA and the 23andMe DNA database. And, you know, gradually I've got a second cousin that we're dialoguing with at the moment. But the interesting thing, and I found this when I visited America to go to a conference, that they don't know about that history of the black GIs. They don't know that themselves. So you say, was any of your uncles, your father or your grandfather? I don't know. So those soldiers went back and buried their secrets as well. So um, I haven't given up because, as I say, DNA's the greater the database, the more likely there are to be connections. So I've got a few names there. I've certainly learned a little bit more about the possible relationships. So I'll keep going. It gives me something to do anyway, <laughs> apart from playing
1: golf. So, <laughs> De- Debra, you sounded like a very content person to me, and I, and I think—is that really how it is? It's just how you sound to me. Do you, are you as content as you sound?
0: Um, I. I I think I am, but I do have some underlying rejection issues. (laughs) I I do compensate and I do get oversensitive, but as the older I get, the more content I become. But there are still, it doesn't take a great deal sometimes just to trigger that fear of rejection, whether it's in a social group or whether it's at a shop or whether it's, (laughs) you know... But with, with the joy of age, you do get more contentment into your life. I've got a lovely, lovely husband and a lovely home and a lovely family. So I've been very fortunate.
1: You know, when I was talking at the outset about you being uh, sent to a children's home, I, as I was saying it, I was thinking there'd be people thinking straight away that, oh, this is going to be some awful story about institutional abuse. And it just isn't um, when it comes to that, that house. No. Um, and so I just wonder, given the happy memories you spoke of of your childhood, and of the reunion when you're all much older, that maybe maybe that's the family. It wasn't much, but maybe that's the family thing you needed right at the very beginning of your life.
0: I'm, I'm I'm certain it was, and I think it it reinforces the importance of those early years. I think it's we had such security there. I mean, not love in the parental sense, but we certainly had affection from the carers. Um, we had a family of like people, which we only thought of as you know, what we knew as brothers and sisters, you know, and it was a safe environment, a loving environment. Um, and, you know, I, to this day, I think that's what set me up for nursing, for example, because it's an, it's an innate um, caring ethos I have. So those early years, that was the family. That was the foundation that I needed to, to sustain me in life. Because no life is without its ups and downs and its problems and its challenges, but you've got that foundation. Um, I'm sure it made the difference.
1: Oh, how lovely to speak with you, Deborah, and thank you so much for sharing your story.
0: Thank you for your interest, Richard. It's been my pleasure.
1: Dr. Deborah Pryor is a retired academic, and there have been several radio and other documentaries made about the story of the brown babies, the children who were the product of mixed-race liaisons in the UK during the Second World War. I'm Richard Feidler. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website, abc.net.au slash conversations.